Get to the church, blind! Get to the church, blind! Go! Now! I'm Pete Mitchell, and he's Peyton Jones, and you're listening to Hardcore Church Planning, the companion podcast for the Church Planner Podcast and Church Planner Magazine. Each week, we'll bring you interviews from planners who are in the trenches making it happen right now. These active church planners bear it all, share their successes, their failures, and what they'd wish they'd known when they were first starting out. Listen in to discover how God is working in their church plan. You know, when I have a large project at home, sometimes it makes sense to do it by myself. At other times, I actually save money in the long term and have a much better solution if I use an expert. It's really not that much different with church planning. Church planners who focus on building their core team and actually planting the church and partner with portability experts like Portable Church Industries hit the ground running. Yes, you may have to raise more funds up front, but let me tell you something. If I could go back in a time machine and do one thing different in all the churches that I planted, I would go back and have invested that money in Portable Church and all of the super cool kit that they give you to make the volunteers and their lives much, much easier. Trust me, your volunteers will feel invested in, and they're going to give you more of what they got. And that time where people are setting up is going to be a time where it sets the atmosphere for you to thrive. If you're thinking about launching in the next six to 36 months, we encourage you to check them out at portablechurch.com. Welcome to another edition of Hardcore Church Planning. I'm your host, Peyton Jones, and my guest today is Dr. James Emery White. He is the uh, author of The Rise of the Nuns and also his newest book, Generation Z. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You know, one of the questions we like to ask just for a lot of our guests who may or may not know you, and they if they do, they may not know this story. How did you come to faith? Hmm. Um, I uh, was not raised in uh, a church-going home at all. I was raised in a very intellectual home uh, that enjoyed exploring and talking about Christianity and theology and apologetics, but uh, decisively unchurched. So I grew up reading C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and Karl Barth and any number of other authors uh, as a non-Christian. So I didn't become a Christian until I was 20 years old, and it was largely through the ministry of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship on my college campus, but more specifically, three friends. I had three Christian friends who were very committed to me and were very persistent in their evangelism efforts and inviting me to things. And, um, uh, and I'm eternally grateful. So anyway, I was reached through a combination of those friends and the ministry of InterVarsity as they got me to attend that. So, yeah. Very cool. And they've stayed pretty much on the cutting edge of uh, where things are at and where things are going. I mean, some of the the greatest church planning things I'm seeing going on right now are through former InterVarsity uh, staff members or just people involved with InterVarsity. So that, that kind of makes sense leading into uh, some of the books you've written, which are really about the front lines of where the, the nuns and the duns are. Um, with the rise of the nuns, I think you were uh, one of the first people to give uh, really coined that phrase for the church. It's, it's certainly been talked about a lot. Um, I don't know that many churches actually know what to do 
in regards to the nuns. So um, first off, define that term. I, I'm sure almost every church planner out there knows it, but you know, every once in a while we get a straggler who comes in and goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. Who are the nuns? What are their defining years from when to when? And what's true about them? Well, there are no defining years because they're not a, a, a generational cohort. They cross all ages. It's uh, more of a cultural manifestation uh, that is happening. It's essentially those who would say that they are religiously unaffiliated. They don't check Catholic, Baptist, or Protestant, or Methodist on any type of survey. They say, I'm nothing. And as, uh, gosh, I mean, they would hover at around 3 to 5% on all demographic studies, social studies of the United States and places like Canada and even the U.K., and then uh, over the last um, 15, 20 years, they've skyrocketed uh, from hovering at like 5% to now one out of every four adults. And those under 30, it's approaching almost 40 to 50% of the entire population would say they're religiously unaffiliated. So they are right now uh, the largest religious grouping in the United States and mm -hmm. fastest growing. I think the reason that people link them generationally is that predominantly this next generation coming up, who you call Generation Z, um, that they are unaffiliated. I mean, they're really almost like a pre-Christian society because they're a post-Christian society. And uh, when I was in the UK, I was a missionary there for about 12 years. Um, that it, it really felt like that to us. I mean, we came into it late in the game. I was actually a part of the, the census in 2000 that uh, filled out the term Jedi as their religious affiliation. So I was there when all that went down, but uh, we're seeing that happen. What happened in Europe is now becoming a reality. Um, tell us a little bit about, um, yeah, Actually, go ahead. Peyton, yeah, yeah, I would, I, I, I'm a, I've got to share many of your UK sensibilities and because uh, I did my studies there or some of my studies there. The, the, what the UK got, it was ahead of us. But um, as I was reminding them, actually, I was at a conference there just last month speaking that the latest studies are showing that while America was lagging behind, our rush to this has been much faster yep. than in the UK. Yep. And we are now within just five percentage points of the degree of secularity that exists within both Canada and the UK. Mm. And I think that that that's that is um, what what I would wish I could get across with more urgency to people and particularly to your church planners yeah, is how is how much velocity there is in the rise of the nuns. Yep. There hasn't been this type of religious, this type of change of the religious landscape this rapidly ever. What do you think has caused this? Well, that's not a soundbite answer, so let me see if I can get it to you in under five minutes. <laughs> hey, we got time. The, the three major processes, I mean, I think most social scientists would agree that the three major processes that have shaped culture uh, has been secularization, privatization, and pluralization. And that those three have really created this culture in which we now live. Secularization, as you know, is, is the removal of religious ideas and forces from the public square. I'm giving extraordinarily shallow, simple uh, definitions. Uh, privatization is the removal of all things of 
faith to the private realm, so it's no more than a favorite taste or color. And then pluralization is the multiplication of faith options, not just the multiplication of options, but the idea that they're all equally true. So these three cultural processes have decisively shaped the world that we're in and has created the context for the rise of the nuns. But when you when you talk to them, you actually talk to someone who would self-identify. They're not going to say that they're a product of secularization, privatization, and pluralization. They're going to say lawyers, guns, and money. Uh, lawyers meaning that they feel like Christians have uh, politicized everything, made everything an agenda, and um, and they you know arm up for every ideological fight. And quite frankly, they don't care whether it's on the right or the left. They don't care whether it's James Dobson or Jim Wallace. It could be either one of them. They don't care. Uh, they just view it all as one thing. The second thing in terms of guns, they would view us. And of course, I'm ripping off an old Warren Zevon song when I say this. But lawyers and then the guns is uh, the hate filled rhetoric that we have, not simply toward the world, mm. but toward each other. Right. They want nothing to do with our toxic community. Yep. Um, and the, the way the smallest of divides, uh, theologically, in terms of church polity, in terms of methodology, uh, is becomes uh, the thing of rancor. Right. And then money, which is raw materialism. Uh, just mega church pastor materialism and their mansions and televangelists and everything else, just all the greed and materialism that they see present. So they would say that now. So you have secularization, privatization, and pluralization, which is kind of the official social science view. You have them saying lawyers, guns, and money. I, I bring all that together and, and I talk about the squishy center. What I mean by that is, is that this is what's, this is what those things have allowed. If you were to say that, say, 15% of the population is hardcore secular, 15% of the population is absolutely sold out to Jesus, I'm just making these polarities up, that in between you've got 70%, that 70% is the squishy center that is moved by whatever is most culturally persuasive. Mm. It used to be. 50 years ago, that Christianity, the Christian worldview, church life, religious leaders, they had cultural influence. And so the natural thing was to push people toward the religious or faith side of things. So, of course, you would go to church on Christmas. You would go on Easter. There would be guilt and cultural pressure if you didn't. If someone asked you, are you a Christian? You would say, well, of course I'm a Christian, because it'd be like saying, if you said you weren't a Christian, it'd be like saying you hated baseball and you were a communist. So there was this cultural pressure. Now it's shifted completely so that there's actually cultural pressure to not go to church, to not be affiliated with a defined faith, to not wed yourself to an ideology or a dogma. Now it's where they used to would say Christian. Now they would say, well, I'm nothing because that's the culturally appropriate thing to do. Now, people who say, well, gosh, that doesn't sound like such a bad deal. That's just a sloughing off of the nominals. Uh, that's a healthy thing. We're going to clean up who's Christian and who's not. Uh, so don't worry. I would say, actually, I would be very worried. Mm. I think it's a very big deal. And the reason is, is that our mission field has always been that squishy center. It's always been that 70%. Right. Uh, that's the field that has been white under harvest. That's who, you know, we're lamenting the passing of Billy Graham as we speak. Yep. Uh, that's who Graham won. That's who Wesley won and Whitfield and all of them, Moody. 
So what we're saying is that now it's just gotten a lot harder, Mm. a lot harder because they are moving further and further and further away from not just an affiliation, but further away from any type of embrace. Because it used to be said that they were uh, spiritual but not religious, but now they're not particularly spiritual. They're spiritual-ish. But that would be it, and they're moving decisively further away. In fact, the latest research on Generation Z is that um, the rate of atheism is twice among Generation Z what it is among the general population. And that was coming up in my earlier studies as well. I mean, this is a, a, the younger you go, the more deeply secular that they, um, they are. And the more you find that they don't even have the memory of the gospel. That, that's exactly how it was in the UK. I mean, we only got back about six years ago. And um, it was very much at where if you said you were a Christian, it wasn't just I don't believe that or, you know, I associate you with, as you said, whatever political machine. But it was literally I can't believe that you would actually like it was funny. It was actually really funny that anyone would still believe to quote Star Wars in in, in ancient hokey religion. So let me ask you, um, we've talked about the different causes of, you know, what's brought this on, this rise of the nuns. Um, and, you know, obviously, I can imagine this is not a popular topic when you speak. In one sense, everybody wants to hear about it, but nobody really wants to hear what you said once you said it, right? It's not happy stuff, and it's not um, not the kind of conversation that wins friends and influences people necessarily. What um, they hate worse is what you would need to do to solve it. And that's what I want to get to. But let me ask you first, because we can talk about what the world did to contribute to this, right? We can talk about those three factors, secularization, privatization, and pluralization. However, um, what has the church done that has contributed to this? Surely we have to look. That's that's the lawyers, guns, and money. That was all. That's what they would say makes them reject Christianity. Those three things is what they pin on Christians. Okay. So. So, I mean, that's, that's it. And then, um, and again, uh, it's the, the, it's not just the moral majority of the 1980s. I mean, they still see Christians as being incredibly, everything is ideological. Everything is a political battle. Right. And, um, and that we are worshiping at the altar of power and control more than we are at the altar of Christ. And there's a, still this idea that, we're wanting to, to make Christianity a top-down kind of right. cultural phenomenon. Okay, so that that's fair, because in Britain, you would you would have a slightly different narrative. They wouldn't say those things there. The secularization happened there with uh, a couple things. First, you had a couple world wars um, that, that pretty much emptied the churches out of men. You had a couple different generations almost wiped out um, in the two great wars. Then you had the liberalization when when they went to fill the pulpits, um, they took them out of seminaries that were increasingly becoming liberal. Um, in America, it's not our narrative. So, okay, so that makes sense. If I look at the church in the eighties and nineties, right? There is that. There was kind of you can see the blind spots now today. Not even in the eighties and nineties. I mean, now. I mean, I think that we're just now in and getting past the kind of. Uh, uh, God hates fags rhetoric yeah. of the two thousands. Yeah, and, and twenty. I mean, really is 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 been. It's really been bad, and particularly with the rise of social media, where um, 
poorly behaving Christians have had, sadly, their voice amplified even more. Right. So right. I, I think I think there is this sense that. Um, think of it this way. Think of a, of a culture full of people who might seriously be interested in coffee. And they're open to coffee. And there's even aspects of the aroma that they find attractive. But they drive right past Starbucks every day and say, well, I, whatever is in there, I know I don't want. Right. Okay, could there be a bigger crisis for Starbucks? Okay, that's what I think is the crisis facing the church in the United States. So, so I do think you've got people interested in God, interested yeah. in spiritual things. Yeah. But they look at us and they say, well, A, I don't want your God. I don't want your community. I don't want your faith. Uh, and right or wrong, that's just where they're at. Right. Right. So what is what is the thing that can be done to face the rise of the nuns and to reach Generation Z? Well, obviously, I've written two books dealing with that. So there's a, a lot that can be said, and, and, and I've tried to say. Let me give you one uh, uh, response that is more attitudinal that is going to have to be that has to be in place long before we start talking about the specific strategies and approaches. The, the Church of the West, and I would I'll say the West, it is far bigger than the United States. I, I travel fairly extensively. I see this everywhere I go. The church has got to repent of spiritual narcissism. What I mean by that, um, as your listeners know, Narcissus was from Greek mythology, and the person who fell in love with his own reflection in the pool became so enamored with it that he never left that reflection and spent the rest of his life looking at himself. There's variations of that. One is that he fell in and drowned, but regardless, it's the I, me, mine mentality. Many people will look at the large megachurch, for example, and feel like, well, they've abandoned orthodoxy to get warm bodies. They are just giving people what they want. They're just catering with a consumeristic mindset, and that's how they're getting crowds. Where that has truly happened, where there has been true spiritual narcissism, a consumer mentality is a consumer mentality in the minds of the believer. And what is what is plaguing the church is that the average Christian looks at the church as a feeding station, as a place that serves them and is to meet their needs. And I am uh, absolutely diametrically opposed. I consider that heresy. I do. I mean, listen to our rhetoric. We say, I want to go where I can be fed. Okay, where are you getting that in Scripture? Paul gives an allusion to a 30-some-year-old guy who's still drinking from a milk bottle. He calls it repulsive. He said, you should be feeding yourself. Right. So, so the very idea of I want to go where I'm fed is a terrible, terrible thing to say and right. betrays our mindset. I, we say, I want to go where uh, I can be ministered to, as opposed to having an idea of I am to minister to others and find my spiritual gifts and put a towel over my arm to serve others. Or we walk out of a worship service and we say, well, I didn't get anything out of it. As if you getting something out of it matters. Right. Right. <laughs> Did God get something out of it? But this, but this is the spiritual narcissism uh, where we make it all about us. And as a result, we don't do the kinds of things that will reach this culture because we're unwilling to make the changes necessary 
within the church in its strategy, its attitude, its outreach, its communication approaches, its music, its whatever. The average Christian fights that because they don't want it to be about anything but themselves. Right. So if there's a forward mantra here at Mac and that I wish would spread around is it's not about you. Right. It's about the person who isn't even here yet, who doesn't give a rip about Jesus. Right. Now, if we can get that down, if we can get that down, then everything else falls into place. Because then, if you're willing to die to yourself and sacrifice, if you're willing to not have it be about you, but be about others, then you're going to be wide open in terms of different approaches and strategies and methodologies and experiments to reach out to people in ways that might be uncomfortable, but might be highly effective. What would you say are some of the trends in strategies and approaches to reaching Generation Z? Well, it's going to begin online. And I, I think that there's a lot of, of churches and millennials, particularly, who fancy themselves digital natives, but they're not. Um, the uh, There's a huge, and people who lump Generation Z as just being a young millennial, I, I just find that very misinformed. You'd be lumping a 13-year-old with a 35-year-old. They don't lump um, Generation Z is the first generation to have grown up with the iPhone, to have grown up with the Internet in its pocket. We forget that that didn't even come out until 2007. And so their world has been radically shaped by that in a way no other generation has. And they are in different kinds of social media than even millennials are. I mean, they are, you're not, you're not going to find Generation Z on Facebook. They're going to be Whisper. They're going to be Snapchat. They're going to be uh, some of those type of forums. But uh, you're going you're gonna to create an online relationship with them. You're going to create an online sense of integrity and presence with them, uh, largely through social media. Um, you're going to um, you're gonna have to be, to, and again, there's so many different aspects in the book that I get into, but they are extremely interested in changing the world as social entrepreneurs. They, they have very little patience for uh, a lack of activity or something that is divorced from um, true cultural impact. Uh, it's been fascinating to watch these students respond to what happened in Florida with such immediate sense of social action and change and an impatience for anything other. Where, no matter where you stand on gun control, um, what has been, from a sociological standpoint, the response of Generation Z to this is radically different than the response of all the other generations. Mm. Interesting. Okay. So what is, uh, so it's online, social impact. Um, what about the conversations that you have with Generation Z? Yeah, we, 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 the average, the average, uh, and again, I, I don't mean this to sound condescending, but uh, the average church leader is doesn't seem to know the questions non-Christians are asking. It's not even Generation Z. It's, it's just non-Christians in general. I, 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 I hear some people talk about evangelism, talk about apologetics, and talk about church growth, and I'm, I'm literally just sitting there thinking, have you actually sat down across from a non-Christian in the last six years? These are not the questions they're asking. These are not... At Mac, we have over 70% of our growth coming from the unchurched. This is all I do is is talk with people who are in this category. Yeah. And you would, uh, you would find our audience of church planners. They're, they're pretty much the same. You know, yeah. it, so, these conversations so, are having all the time. 
Yeah. So like, what's like, if I were to just say, um, so what's like, what is a topic that you could build a bridge and walk across to the typical non-Christian and it's going to get hotter and hotter and hotter the younger they get this particular topic. Um, and it was the number one or one of the top, if not the number one selling nonfiction book last year. If I were to tell people astrophysics, they would, their mouth would drop open. But that's what it is. Uh, studies found that uh, not just science, but cosmology, and particularly astrophysics, is the area of interest. Mm. It was the number one selling nonfiction book on Amazon uh, for a lot of last year. Um, and, and, there, and it is the number one way that they would say they are open to the idea of God. Right. Okay. If we can't talk that conversation, we're missing one of the biggest bridges. Another one, too. I had somebody reach me the other day and uh, say, uh, you are the only evangelical pastor of, that we know that has done a series on Me Too. And I said, wow. Mm. Like, here is the biggest cultural conversation, the biggest cultural upheaval since the 1960s. And this reporter said, you're the only large evangelical church that we know of yeah. that has done a series on it. Okay, that that's that that just boggles my mind. Yeah, same here. We did a when it came out, we did a show on it and we said, Hey, what what happens? We have another podcast called uh Church Planner Podcast. And we yeah. said, Well, you know, when when the Me Too movement hits the church, instead of resisting it, this should be something that we celebrate. Oh, we we should be defying women. We yeah. should be talking about sexism. We should be talking Absolutely. about uh, domestic violence in the home. We should be talking about all of these kinds of things. And 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 we we did a four week series on it uh, throughout the month of January and um, broke every attendance record that we had. They were hanging wow. from the. I mean, because and so um, uh, so that and then another one is is uh, when when you do listen to apologetics. I find there's very little engagement with um, what I find to be the biggest question about Christianity, which is not does God exist or Bart Ehrman's Jesus stuff. It's more about, okay, what I know about this God of yours from the Bible, I don't want anything to do with him. Mm -hmm. That's God. I don't want him because he's the whole moral monster stuff genocide wiping out you know people groups and making people sacrifice their sons and you know, capital punishment for every little thing 16 17 different instances and on and on it goes and again most people are not addressing those questions uh, because they're difficult well let me ask you um so uh, <laughs> I always hate asking this question in general, but can you just give us a rough estimate of the size of your church, the church you pastor? Sure. Uh, we're a little over 10,000 active attenders. Okay. So 10,000, 70% is conversion growth. What are you guys doing? What has been the things or some of the principles that you've taken into account that a church planner can apply to reach these unchurched? Well, what it's worth, I was a church planner. I planted Mac. So I, I'm very sympathetic to all things with church planning because yep. I am one, and that's that's how I started. Uh, we started in a Hilton Hotel ballroom. I showed up in Charlotte in a U-Haul truck. No people, no money, no building, no nothing. Mm-hmm. 
sent out a dinky little mailer. They did mailers back then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What year are we talking? Uh, 1992. Okay, all right. And so we had 112 people at our first service. And through the strength of my preaching, I had it at 56 by week three. <laughs> that's typical. So, and, uh, and of course, that's that's misleading because that means I had about 25, 30 adults and I had some volunteers and people back in children's ministry and people who walked outside of the hotel ballroom doors really slow. I think we counted them, but it was just, it was modest at the beginning. Uh, and, um, and been at it now going on 26 years and I would consider, well, you know, the growth has been, uh, fun. It's been relatively modest and relatively stable. None of these go from zero to 5,000 in a year kind of stuff, which tends to light up the conference circuit. Now, I don't even know that that's healthy, but, um, uh, what I would say to church planners is, is that is a couple, three things. One, you've got to set an outreach oriented culture in your church from day one, and you need to protect it as the number one hill you will die on, lose whoever you need to lose, pay whatever price, but you keep that culture intact and don't sell out to transfer growth. You stick to conversion growth and doing what it takes. The second thing that I would say to do is to um, make sure that you are putting into this culture of outreach, this it's not about us kind of mentality that it's always about sacrificing if we have to park far away if we're the ones in the nursery and not in the service or whatever just that that just make that those are the heroes the third thing is a culture of invitation the the heart of max growth has been a culture of invitation where it is just in our culture to build relationships with people and invite them now the reason that that culture works is not just because it's been taught celebrated and put forward but because we have constantly created a front door experience that people intuitively know would serve their friends. Right. Now, if we ever didn't do that, um, then our culture of invitation would start to break down because even though that might be um, celebrated and encouraged, people are going to intuitively say, but I don't want Bill to come because this service isn't going to help or he's not going to get it or it's going to turn him off. So, you so would, in many um, ways, you'd be an advocate of the attractional model with this generation. I, I get so, not at you, but I, I get so frustrated with attractional versus missional. The answer is yes. Yeah. It's an absolute artificial divide. Yeah, it is. It, 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 you have to be missional. That's what a culture of invitation is. People, uh, you know, storming the gates of the marketplace and everything else, and not only being Christ there, but building relationships. But then we just throw another um, uh tool in that we also have a weekend events. And I do think that's the front door of the church still may not be in five years, but it is now. And we also make it so that then you can add to that and invite your friend with this come and see, come and hear, come and taste, come and experience. And, and it helps move them down the field, you know, in, in big chunks. I mean, that's where you can get big chunks of yardage. And so it's both. And, um, what that looks like has changed over the years that people are, are instantly thinking, oh, the Willow secret targeted stuff. I would say, look, Willow doesn't even do that anymore. Yeah. It's, it's, we're, we're, we're a little more sophisticated than that, but you still are creating a weekend service that is designed for your friends. Yeah. I always kind of think changes. of the, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and that changes. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like month by month. 
I always think of the uh, missional attractional. I to me, it's a both and. You know, it's it's a by any means necessary. The Malcolm X theory of or, or philosophy of church planning, and also it's kind of like the the light beer, right? Is it is it does it taste great or is it less filling? You know, and you got people separating on the camps. Well, the reality is it's both. It's both missional and attractional in the New Testament. But I just I wanted people to hear that clearly that you're saying yes, it will. Attractional is not because I think there's a myth that says only missional will work with the next generation. Well, uh, we're proving that wrong. Yeah. I think a lot of people, I think Kerry Newhoff, a lot of guys that have yeah. big attractional churches are actually demonstrating no. And then, and then I think what it really becomes down to is discipleship. You know, people have re- reacted against attractional church because rightly in many cases, they saw it as, uh, a place where you went to hear the gospel and not get discipled. Whereas, uh, the missional movement maybe, you know, finds great strength in discipleship, but, you know, maybe, maybe your friend doesn't want to come to your house. I'll never forget hearing Steve Timmis, uh, Acts 29, Western Europe. He pointed out that, you know, whereas the missional movement was kind of new here, it, you know, it's funny because it's the same again with beer. You know, they're like, Oh, that's cool. Microbreweries. How cute. Yeah. We've been doing that for a thousand and something years. So. Uh, the same with missional, you know, Steve Timmis has been at this for, you know, four decades. And he came to the conclusion eventually that as many peoples we reached by missional communities, there was still a great swath of British society that was never going to walk through the door of anyone's home because it just wasn't culturally appropriate. You know, I'm glad to hear you say this because the, the, one of the frustrations I have, and I, I, I have it as a seminary professor, of students, I have this as speaking to church planners and speaking to other pastors. Uh, we we just keep falling into all of these false dichotomies that are not biblical. Mm-hmm. As if okay, if I do evangelism well, you must not be doing discipleship. If you focus on discipleship, you're not doing evangelism. If you're attractional, you're not missional. If you're missional, you're not attractional. Right. All these kinds of things. And I I'm, and listen, I've been in this game uh, being a pastor of a church for over thirty years. I've led my church for twenty six of those. Um, we we're we're having very high percentages of people we're reaching from the unchurched, and I would say to younger leaders, it's it's attractional and missional and evangelism and discipleship. It is it is it is all of it, and 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 if we can't somehow pull it all off, then Jesus lied, right? Because his great commission said to do both. And he said, this is what I'm charging you to do. And I will be with you as you do it. So, so if, if, if we can't, if we're not doing it, then either he gave us a false mission or we're obviously not doing it right. Right. So I, I I did, I did particularly, there used to be a lot in the early days that churches like Mac that were just reaching a lot of people for Christ. It was just automatic. Well, you're obviously not doing this. Right. Or right. you're obviously compromising things or just tickling ears. And I'd be, it would just drive me insane <laughs> because it's like, it, <laughs> I feel like saying, you're saying that to a guy with a PhD in systematic theology as a professor of theology. You're telling me I don't care about theology. Right. That's, right. I mean, <laughs> no, it's just that what happens is, is that if you have, a weekend service that you are trying to throw open as a front door. And if all somebody does is just come to that service 
and they instantly just kind of uh, reduce everything you do as a church to what they see in that one service, that one weekend, uh, then they're going to get a very, very skewed picture of what that church does holistically. Right. Okay, well, my guest today has been Dr. James Emery White. His books have been The Rise of the Nun. We've been talking about some of the principles out of that. Of course, we have barely scratched the surface. This is the tip of the iceberg. And his newest book is Generation Z. Highly recommend that you get a hold of these. Dr. White speaks all over the United States, different parts of the world. And every time I've ever read something he has to say, it's worth reading. And when I hear what he has to say... It's worth listening to. And you've gotten a taste of that today. The book is packed full of an analysis of uh, how we got here, uh, what we need to do. And it's worth your time, church planner, grabbing hold of that uh, just to, to, to understand it so that you can approach it. So again, my guest here, Dr. James uh, White, and want to ask you, Dr. White, we ask this every podcast. We don't always, uh, we, we change the players up every time. Our guests never fully expect it, but it's always fun. If you, this is our final question, if you and Kerry Newhoff were to get in a physical fist fight, who would win? Oh, he knows I would. Yeah, he does. Darn yeah. straight. He's a little guy. Yeah, yeah. You know, he yeah, looks I'm, tall, though. He looks tall yeah, to me no, from a distance. No, I, 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 uh, I, I love Gary. He's a friend. And uh, but I just, just recently did something with him, and he's prince of a guy, and I'd whoop him in a heartbeat. Yeah, you would. Yeah, you would. And let him know about it. It's funny because— I'm older than him, too. You what? And I'm older than him, and I'd still do it. You probably would. You know, you, you got that kind of like, he's really happy and really nice, and you've got that kind of like, I'm going to tell I'm, you about the nuns— I'm not happy and I'm not nice. I was going to say, you just got that, like, I'll tell you about this stuff, but don't mess with me. Okay. (laughs) So I like it. Hey, our guest again, Dr. James White. Pass it on to Carrie. What's that? Pass it on to Carrie. (laughs) You know, when we interviewed Carrie, Carrie, uh, Carrie pretty much just said, I don't want to fight them. I'll let them win, which he knew Carrie would, right? So. Anyways, my guest today, Dr. James White, his books, Generation Z, Rise of the Nuns. Check him out. And where can they connect with you, Dr. White? Uh, the best way is the Church and Culture website. It's churchandculture.org. They can subscribe to the blog for free there and get it in their inbox. They can get messages at Mac. They can get all kinds of stuff there. Uh, learn about if a Church and Culture conference is coming near to their area. Churchandculture.org. All right. Well, hey, thank you for the work that you do for all of us, for the church. We appreciate your passion for the next gen and also for the church where it finds itself today in a post uh, Christian, postmodern world. We appreciate everything you've done to push the borders of the kingdom out. Thanks for being our guest today. And this has been Hardcore Church Planning. Arnold, sign us out. Remember, if you are called to church planting, go hardcore or go home. You've been listening to Hardcore Church Planning. Hardcore Church Planning has been brought to you by the Church Planner Podcast and the Church Planner Magazine, which is available in the App Store for both Apple and Android devices. If you like this episode, leave us a positive review. If you didn't like this episode, we'll be happy to give you your money back.